John chapter 2. Uh, we're actually going to focus on 12 through 17, but I'm going to read the, the next part of this text as well. Uh, I will allude to it uh, probably a couple times in the course of my sermon, so it makes sense that you'll actually know what I'm alluding to. Beginning in verse 12. After this, referring to the wedding in Cana, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, not just... Uh, because I woke up in the middle of the night due to the rain. But for many reasons, I feel insufficient for these things. But you reminded Judah after the exile that the promises they received would not be accomplished by Judah's might and power. Instead, they would be done by your Spirit. And so, we need your Spirit to illumine the Scriptures, to apply them to us, to enable us to believe them, to sanctify us, to stir us to worship. And may he do these things and more through Jesus' name. Amen. One of the minor controversies of our time is this. How should you read the Chronicles of Narnia? Should you read them in chronological order, or should you read them in the way in which they were written? That's not really what I want to talk about. But I'll talk about part of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. That's really where I want to go. You see, the siblings have come into this brand new world called Narnia. Well, it's new to them. It's not new, but it's new to them. They're very confused. They don't really have a lay of the land because everything is different. They meet talking animals, for instance. That would probably challenge us in a number of ways. It's always winter there. They weren't necessarily prepared for winter. And so they sit down with uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who have taken them in and have fed them, and they have a long conversation, and they hear a little bit about Aslan, the great lion, and they're not really sure what to make of Aslan. And so Susan asks the question that is probably on most people's minds as they start to read this section of the book. Is he quite safe? After all, he is a lion, isn't he? Mr. Beaver responds to Susan. Of course, he isn't safe. 
but he's good. The promise was not that Aslan would be gentle, but that Aslan would be good. In our day and age, we, someone has coined this phrase, and I think it's very good in encompassing how most Americans view God. And that is moralistic, theistic, therapeutic, sorry, deism. Meaning that if you do good, relatively speaking, and that's rather vague in itself, uh, generally speaking, uh, you know, God is there, you know, he'll, he'll show up and he'll help you feel better about your life. He's really there to make your life seem smooth and seem good. This idea of therapeutic in this phraseology. Jesus is not into moralistic, therapeutic deism in any way, shape, or form. He is good. He cares about morality, yes. But he's not necessarily concerned about how you feel today. He's more concerned about who you are. And he's not going to show up just to make you feel good, but he's going to show up to make you good. There's a big difference between those two things. And that's part of what's going on here in this text this morning. The big idea is that the Lord of the temple pursues its purity. Let's start with the reality that Jesus faithfully fulfilled God's law for us. Remember last week we talked about the the wedding in Cana and how this was a sign or a symbol of something that Jesus, who Jesus was and what he was going to do. And we see that Jesus was the Lord of the feast and that he was going to fulfill the ceremonial law and truly purify his people. And so it makes sense that we're going to go down to the temple next. Okay. But before he goes down to Jerusalem, he and his mother, brothers, and disciples Go to Capernaum, about 16 miles away. Capernaum, which probably means, can be better translated as village of Nahum. But, <coughs> excuse me, there's a question here that should arise to us with this one word, brothers. It's actually been a little controversial whether or not Jesus has brothers. Not sure exactly why it's controversial, but it, it is controversial. Approximately the second century, this idea came into the church that had really, has really dominated large portions of the church up until this point in time. And that is the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Meaning that, even though in, uh, when the angel came and told Joseph about what had happened with Mary, that her conception was not due to immorality, but was actually she was overcome by the Holy Spirit. He was told to uh, take her as his wife, and he, it says that he did not have relations with her, did not consummate their marriage until after the birth of Jesus. Some have taken that to infer that he never consummated that marriage. So, when they came to this word, brothers, the people who had, who had got this extra-biblical, what I think is an extra-biblical presupposition or assumption, well, they had to explain this. And so one of the two main explanations for this comes from Jerome, and he said that uh, they're his cousins. Now, in Hebrew, the word brothers 
can be applied to people who are cousins, extended relatives. It's used that way numerous times in the Old Testament. And, you know, it doesn't take very long to find one of these passages. But Augustine, when he writes about this, well, speaks about this in his homily on this particular passage, uh, he, he says that because it can be used that way, it therefore is used that way. In other words, he overstates his case. Just because it can be used that way doesn't mean that in this instant it is used that way. It could be used to mean literal brothers. Understand the distinction I'm trying to make? Well, he wasn't the only, this was not the only way which people tried to explain this. Uh, a guy named uh, Epiphanius, 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 those Greek names sometimes trip me up, I'm sure they trip you up. He believed that, or put forth the idea that these were Joseph's sons by a previous marriage, that Joseph, a righteous man, had been married, he had had children, his wife died, and he took Mary to be a second wife, and uh, so forth, so on. And that, therefore, he he never consummated the marriage with Mary. Jesus came, and that was it. But would John call them his brothers? Not in the literal sense, anyway. Then there's the natural reading of the text, which goes against all of these, that Mary's sons were born after Jesus. Thanks to John Piper, let's look at Matthew 13 for a second. Verse 55, you don't have to turn there, you can listen, I'm going to read it. Is not this the carpenter's son, Joseph's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Okay, so there, Mary is connected with these four names. James, Simon, I lost my perspective. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, otherwise otherwise known as Jude. Okay. Now, of course, brothers there, not really sure what that means. That could mean cousins until we get to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, in verse 56, talking about who was there at the cross. And among them were Mary Magdalene and, and this is going to be the key thing, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Sounds like the same Mary to me. And there, here in Matthew, she is declared to be the mother of these children. So I think this provides us, if we take a clearer passage to understand the less clear passage, what we're encouraged to do in the Westminster Confession of Faith, called the uh, the analogy of Scripture, if we do that, then we see that this idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary is extra-biblical and non-biblical, that Mary and Joseph consummated their marriage, and they had kids. Four of them, maybe even more. All right, that's sort of a little, that's an important thing that comes up, but it's not why we're here this morning. Let's move on to more important business. After a few days in Capernaum, Jesus heads to Jerusalem for the Passover. It doesn't say right there who went with him, but we know that the disciples were there from later on in this text. So at the very least, he went with his disciples. We don't know if he went with his mother and his brothers. Now, his brothers would have to go. Because in Deuteronomy 16, they are, all of Israel is instructed, in verse 16 of chapter 16, three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, which would end up being Jerusalem. 
at the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, otherwise known as Passover, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths, otherwise known as Tabernacles. So, all Israelite men were required to show up these three times a year, and one of them is about to come, so Jesus and his disciples go down to Jerusalem in order to celebrate rightfully the Passover. And so, this is important for us to understand. Jesus is following the requirements of the law that God had given. If he is going to be a spotless lamb as a sacrifice to his people, he must fully obey the commands of God. And we see testimony to this in numerous places. Later on, Jesus is going to say, which of, my, which of God's laws have I broken? Show me, tell me, and no one says a word. So he faithfully fulfills these commandments that were found in the Old Testament. Jesus was not careless about the law. Now, he did not obey necessarily the Pharisees' additions to the law or their interpretations of the law. For we're going to see in various places that he and the Pharisees will disagree on how the Sabbath is to be celebrated. And so Jesus is fully in accordance with God's law, but not necessarily with the tradition of the elders and with the Pharisees. That's a big difference. But Jesus is faithful in keeping <coughs> his Father's law. And so Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law on our behalf. They are imputed to us by faith. And so part of Jesus' goodness is revealed in his faithfully keeping God's law for our salvation. Let's press further in. And we see that Jesus, the Son of God, is the Lord of the temple. Being good, Jesus is disturbed by what he finds in the temple upon his arrival. We're not going to get into what he does uh, just yet. We're going to hold on for that for a few more minutes. But I want to explain his actions because that gets to the root of why he did what he did. His actions, he actually explains his actions rather to those who sold the doves there in the court of the temple as well as to his disciples. He talks about how they have turned my father's house into something. That's what I hit on right now. My father's house. He did not say, our father's house. He was not aligning himself with everybody else, like when he taught his disciples to pray, our father who art in heaven. He's setting himself apart from them in a particular way with regard to the father. He is indicating that he is the Son of God. Now, this was not a new revelation to Jesus. He's known this at least since he was 12 years of age. For we see in Luke chapter 2, again, at a Passover. His family goes down. They celebrate the Passover. Jesus lose track, loses track of time or something. And anyway, he's with the teachers. He's, he's asking them questions. He's interacting with them and, in many ways, showing them up. In a good way, okay? Helping to, to realize how they've missed certain things. His family begins to go back home to Nazareth. They go, wait a minute, where's Jesus? They go back to Jerusalem, search everywhere, finally find him in the temple. And his response to them in chapter 2, in verse <coughs> 49 is, He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? 
So this is very different from, remember last week I talked about uh, uh, Kassanakis' book, which got turned into the Scorsese movie, The Last Temptation of Christ. This Jesus who doesn't really understand who he is and is really kind of freaked out about who he thinks he might be because he hears these voices, that's not the Jesus of Scripture. The Jesus of Scripture has a clear grasp of who he is, and he has for a long time. Now, New Testament scholars talk about the messianic secret. Jesus had an an awareness of who he was, but he didn't talk about who he was until that day. Now that his earthly ministry has begun, now that he has been anointed by the Holy Spirit in order to be the Messiah, now is the time when he can begin to speak about who he is. There's a lot of to do today about who does and doesn't come out of a closet. This is a very different closet. Jesus has kept this knowledge about himself secret because it was not time. There's nothing wrong with the knowledge that he has about himself. In fact, the knowledge he has is about his goodness and about his greatness. But now is the time when Jesus starts to let everybody know who he is. He no longer walks around with the secret, but begins to speak the truth about himself, that he is the Son of the Father, the everlasting Son of the everlasting Father. He is the Son. That's significant. Hebrews 3, which we've mentioned previously in this series here in John, Verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Our boasting and our hope, yes. (coughs) The contrast, of course, was with Moses. Moses was faithful as a servant. Jesus is faithful as son. And so when we think of the temple... We recognize that the priests and the Levites were intended to be faithful over the house of God as servants. But Jesus is faithful to the house of God, the temple, as a son. As the son of God and the heir of all things, he is also the Lord of the temple. He has authority over the temple. The priests and Levites didn't. They were merely servants. But Jesus is the one who is able to declare what must be or should be or cannot be done in the temple. Jesus is the one who has authority over the temple as Lord, not the priests, not the Levites. And so it's sort of ironic that they ask, by what authority are you going to do this? As we're going to see, talk about more in depth next week. In that stuff we're going to talk about next week, we see that Jesus talks about himself as the temple. He's the temple, really, the eternal temple that we've been waiting for, that they were waiting for. Because, of course, in AD 70, the Jewish temple gets destroyed. There's not going to be another one because it's been rendered obsolete, according to Hebrews, by the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. There's no longer a physical, earthly temple on earth. You know, here. There doesn't need to be another one. There's not going to be another one. Jesus himself is the final temple. But there's something significant about this. If we are united to Christ by the Spirit 
through faith in Christ, we also are part of that final temple. We see Paul talking about this in Ephesians 2. We see Peter talking about it in 2 Peter, uh, sorry, 1 Peter 2, you know, living stones. But we see it as well here. 2 Corinthians 6. I've got a different, uh, I've got 1 Corinthians, a different passage from 1 Corinthians in, in your notes. But listen to this from 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So, part of this great picture of salvation that goes beyond the forgiveness of sin, that connects with what we saw back in the promises given to Abraham, that idea that he is our God, we are his people, but it's magnified in the sense of he dwells among us, he dwells in us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, by the person of the Holy Spirit, he, he makes us, not just individually, but also corporately, as his temple, his house. We are part of the new temple. Jesus, the greater living temple, has united us to himself so that we are part of this as well. And so Jesus reveals his greatness as the Son of God and therefore the Lord of the temple. Which brings us to the last part of this. Does it feel like I'm going too fast? Okay. I feel like I'm going too fast. It's one of those mornings. Everyone's zooming by me. Thirdly, Jesus zealously pursues the purity of the temple. What did Jesus find that angered him? Sacrificial animals and money changers. That wasn't really the issue. The issue was not that, but where they were. Okay? The outer court of the temple was supposed to be reserved for the Gentiles. So they could come, so they could pray, they could hear the reading of the law and perhaps come into to conviction. There was, a, in other words, God made a provision for Gentiles to come and listen. To come to faith. And what had happened is that they had decided that instead of allowing the Gentiles to come into this space, it's a big high holy day, let's bring in the animals that people need for the sacrifices. Now, they needed the oxen, and they needed the sheep, and they needed the doves, uh, precisely because many of the people who were coming for Passover and for any other time would often come great distances. And so what happens is they would bring money, they wouldn't bring animals. They would come and they would buy the animals because if you bring the animal, you know, you, it, it probably slows you down a little bit and uh, you have to bring water for it, you have to bring food for it. Just, it becomes cumbersome, you know. So I don't like traveling with my animals. Often, anyway. <clears throat> anyway. 
So they would provide the service, which is a good service. The problem was is that they put it in the court. And you see the different kinds of animals that are there. The doves, of course, are for the poorest of the people who can't afford to buy an, to you know sacrifice an oxen or sacrifice a lamb. But there's also the money changers that are there, and that's a pretty simple thing as well. The temple only accepted one kind of coin. It was the Tyrian coin. Now, some people have thought, well, that's because the, Tyrian, the other coins had these false images on them, and that's not true, because the Tyrian coin also had false images on it as well. The point was, the Tyrian coin was more pure. That coin was known for its, the purity of its metal, of its silver, and of its gold. Because what they would do after they received the temple tax is they didn't keep the coins. They melted the coins and produced ingots. And I hope I just pronounced that correctly because I always goof that one up. Okay, So they melted it down and produced the ingots. So they wanted the purest coin possible. So all the temple tax was paid in the same coin. So you would show up with your dollars or your pesos or your marks. It didn't exist then, but you know what I mean. And you would get the proper coin to get, pay the temple tax. And of course, the money changers made a little bit of money on this. Just like if you go to the bank and exchange one form of currency for another, they usually make a little bit of money off of it, right? They're providing a service. So the problem, again, was not that this was happening. The problem was where it was happening. It was keeping the Gentiles from where they should be. Again, it's just what the realtors say. It's all about location, location, location. Okay? Okay thing, bad place. Right? We don't play football in the kitchen. It's not my household. Okay? Now, Jesus says, again, that idea of my father's house, he says that they have turned his father's house into a house of trade by doing this. Okay? The Greek word there is emporium. We have transliterated that word. I mean, we find it today, you know, usually in ritzy sort of shops. You know, if you want to give the impression anyway that your, your shop is high class, you throw emporium at the end. Okay? As, as Fancy Nancy would say, those of you who remember the children's stories. It's just a fancy word for store. That's all it is. But they changed the temple into a store. And that was wrong. They should not have done that. Now we have another problem that sort of arises here. In John, the cleansing of the temple comes at the very beginning of his ministry. And the Synoptic Gospels, otherwise known as Matthew, Mark, and Luke, It happens at the end of his ministry. We heard part of it from Luke 19 uh, a little bit ago, and that's, you know, triumphal entry, all of that happens. He goes into the temple and clears the temple. Now, for some people, this is an issue. I don't know why this is an issue. We like to make, because it seems as if there's a contradiction within Scripture. There's not a contradiction within Scripture. If we look at the, the, the details of the events, we see that they're actually different. John talks about house of business. In all three of the other accounts, it's a den of robbers. That's different. He quotes from Jeremiah. It's conceivable that Jesus could cleanse the temple more than once in his earthly ministry. Why is that too fantastic to believe that he might do that? And so I think the best way to understand this is that both at the beginning and the end of his earthly ministry, he cleared out the temple. But things had apparently gotten worse 
because it went from place of trade to den of thieves. Not so good. The people's relationship with the temple was very important. In a sense, as the temple goes, so goes the people. In Jeremiah, for instance, in chapter 7, the people had really kind of changed this idea. They thought that they could sort of sin as much as they wanted, and it didn't matter. They were safe as long as the temple was there. They had turned it almost into magic. We have the temple. God's not going to destroy us. The temple's here. And so we see this in in Jeremiah 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And so they're using it sort of as magic, as as a talisman to kind of keep away evil. And God was saying to them, you need to change how you live. Similarly, we see in Ezekiel chapter 8, uh, you know, after the first wave of exiles go, goes out to Babylon, we have Ezekiel, who was amongst the priestly class, who receives this vision, and God brings him to the temple through the power of the Spirit. And what he sees is frightening. Chapter 8, verse 16, And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and behold... At the entrance of the temple of the Lord, and between the porch and the altar, there were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. They were participating in idol worship in the temple. It had gotten so bad that they weren't just sinning in other places and coming and pretending it was all okay, but they had actually brought their sinfulness into the temple through idolatry. Which is why God would come and destroy the temple and bring the rest of his people into exile. Martin Lloyd-Jones, otherwise known as the doctor, when things go wrong in the temple, they will go wrong everywhere. The key to everything is our relationship to God. And so the the issue here is not just that they were doing the wrong thing in the temple, but it pointed to the greater problem with regard to the people of Israel. They were, if you were to pretend for a moment that this was the time of judges, there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The people of Israel were lost confused, and full of sin. Okay? An impure, relation, uh, sorry, an impure temple means a corrupt relationship with God, which leads inevitably to a corrupt lifestyle. There's a proverb in Proverbs. Martin Lloyd-Jones mentions it a few times in his uh, sermons on this, te- this text, which he did too. I'm only doing one. Righteousness exalts a nation. Where there's a healthy church, where there's a healthy people of God, there is going to be righteousness, and the nation as a whole will tend to be generally healthy. 
Okay, there's a, there's an overflow of the gospel that expands beyond the church itself, and many who are not Christians will benefit from it. And so, oftentimes you see that when a nation, you know, after the gospel rises to power, there's usually a strong Christian basis there. There's a strong church there. And what happens after the church becomes weak is that the nation begins to go into decline. Sin destroys a nation. Righteousness, through the gospel, exalts a nation. It's not military power, it's not economic power that exalts a nation, but it's righteousness that exalts a nation. Now, as all this is going on, or perhaps when they think about it later, we're not exactly sure, the the Greek is unclear as to what happens, the disciples think of Psalm 69. And John quotes half of that verse. I'm going to quote the whole verse. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And so, the text that we're dealing with today has to do with the first half. Zeal for his house consumed Jesus. But next week we're going to see that there's a hinge there that the reproaches of those who reproach God are going to fall on Jesus. Okay, we're going to see some of that beginning next week. Okay? But I want to throw that seed out to you, get you to start to think about this thing. Zeal. Jesus did all of this because of zeal for his father's house. This week I was listening to an interview with Jake Peavy, who um, is a baseball pitcher. And you don't, have to, you don't have to like baseball or really understand baseball to understand this, okay? So for those of you who oh don't know sports. He was traded from the White Sox to the Red Sox in the middle of the season. And he talks about when he first showed up in the Red Sox locker room. He showed up what he thought was early. Okay, make a good impression, get there before the other guys, you know, get my stuff in the locker, get all situated and all that. He says, there were three guys there already. Pedroia, Sotolomachia, and Johnny Gomes. And if those names don't mean anything to you, it's okay. It doesn't matter. Says hi to these guys. And within seconds, he says, Sotolomachia, the catcher, goes to him, we're going to the World Series. And then Johnny Gomes, he's talking to Johnny Gomes, and Johnny Gomes says, he asks Johnny Gomes how he's doing. He's like, I'm great. One day closer to the parade. He's like, what in the world is he talking about? One day closer to the parade. Then it goes, oh, the World Series parade. These guys believe that not only are they going to the World Series, but they're going to win the World Series. And Jake Peavy said, this is where I want to be. Because they had a zeal to do something, and that zeal was played out in their actions. These three men were early for a home game because they want to be prepared. And so Jesus' zeal resulted in actions. And in this case, that action is the purification of the temple. He takes these cords, he turns them into a whip, and he goes through and he starts swinging that. There's our kind, gentle... Jesus, huh? He's not safe if you're a sinner. And he drives the oxen and the sheep and the, the people who sell them out. He tips over the chairs of the, and tables of the money changers and the money's going everywhere. I'm not sure what happened to it then. I'm sure someone was grabbing for it. But nonetheless, 
Jesus was not safe. He was good, but he wasn't safe. And so Jesus has a similar zeal for the new temple in which the Spirit dwells. He has a a, a similar zeal for the church. Now, when Jesus does things like this, we're going to see the response next week. And basically, they accuse Jesus of what the king of Israel accused Elijah of being. Oh, you troubler of Israel. You troublemaker. And really, what Elijah said back was, you're the one who troubles Israel. But it's the one who points it out that often gets to be called the bad guy. Okay? Jesus is pointing out the problems, and he's about to be called the bad guy for this. Just like Elijah was called the bad guy. Because it was the sin of Israel that was, the, you know, why it didn't rain for three years. It was not Elijah. It was their sin. Jesus still pursues the doctrinal and moral purity of the church and her worship. We're about to enter the season in the church year called Lent. And really, that's part of what Lent really ought to be about. This time of confession of our failures as individuals and as churches. Precisely because Jesus still cares about the purity of the church. Let's not think that because we have been cleansed from our sin that Jesus doesn't care about the sin that remains. He still does. He's going to come at us as a brother. He will chasten us, as it says, as a, you know, like a brother. The, the God the Father chastens us as a, as a son that he loves. But where there is sin that we're not turning from, God's going to respond. This passage indicates that to us. He wants his people and his temple on earth to be pure. And he will work to produce that. And so this is not so much a, a you know, I'm not, the application really here isn't so much, you know, you, you know, examining yourself. It's not about you trying to purify the church but recognizing when Jesus is trying to purify the church and not fighting him, but embracing what he has to say about what's wrong in the church. And there's plenty that's wrong in the church. I'm speaking bigger scale than us, but we have our own problems too, okay? It's easy, as I've said before, for Christians to talk about the problems in the world. But 1 Peter says that judgment begins in the house of God. God starts here. And so Jesus is still at work purifying the temple. And so what that means is is that if, if a Christian is not struggling with sin, but pursuing sin... Okay, there's a difference there. There is a place for Jesus to deal with them. In his providence, as well as in church government. A Christian may experience affliction 
that he must treat as discipline and repent. But there's also times in which the church finds out about this sin and calls them to repentance. And if they continue to pursue their sin, you know, one way that Jesus purifies the temple is church discipline. Not an easy nor pleasant thing, but it's a good thing to protect the purity of God's people. But sometimes a whole congregation can be caught up in a particular sin. There have been whole congregations and denominations that have been sold over, so to speak, to racism or greed. Okay, we, we tend to think about what those liberal churches now sort of do, you know, and, and what they're doing is wrong. The sins they're pursuing are wrong, or they're allowing people to pursue. But among more conservative churches, we still struggle with race issues. We still struggle with greed. There are things we still struggle with. We still struggle with divorce, wrong divorce, unbiblical grounds. People still struggle in, in conservative churches with adultery. These things still happen. And Christ cares that they happen, and Christ will root it out. Let us not be surprised when hard times come because of our sin, but recognize it is the goodness of God bringing this to light so that we will confess it and be purified. One last quote from the doctor this morning before we go. There will always be a clearing out first. There will be a process of terrible examination, not self-examination. God will reveal the hidden things of darkness. He will explore the, the dungeons of your soul, and you will see things inside yourself that will horrify you. Jesus means business. For our good. That we might receive grace. That we might become more like Him. Jesus does this. So Mr. Beaver was right. Those, for those who are troubling Narnia, Aslan comes in wrath to protect those that he loves. Well, Jesus isn't safe either. While he fulfilled God's law on our behalf and justifies us freely by his grace, he has made no treaty with our sin. He works to reveal and remove sin from this living temple. And so we will face his discipline when we cling to our sin as if it were good. But his goodness means that he must root it out. He must loosen our grip of all these things that seek to destroy us and those who are around us. And so as this Lenten season begins, will you pray for Jesus to purify his people, including yourself? Let's pray now. Father, we thank You that this is here in the Scriptures. But we acknowledge that it's a hard word. It is intended as all of these things are for our good, and yet the working of them doesn't feel good. And we can shrink back at times from asking You to examine us because we already know that there's much in there that's dark and dirty. And we're afraid. 
but help us to look to Christ and Him crucified, to know that because we are justified freely by Your grace, because we have the righteousness of Christ, we can boldly face the problems that we have, the habits and sins that plague us and weigh us down. And so, we ask that Your Spirit would be at work to enliven us, to help us to see the things we don't want to see, but must see. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.